0: is all right, I got it. under wraps now and this is all night. Get us out of sight, uptight. one of my questions, a stage right, ball fall down, right light up town. Asking questions Do fall down, fall down, fall down, fall down. Do you join me on the Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host. Mary Brown. Are you tired of reacting to work situations in a manner you regret? How do you become the person you want to be in your organization in both good and bad times? Today on Conflict Managed, Jonathan Rodriguez encourages us to be mindful. When you practice mindfulness, you develop the habits of acting in line with your values and reflecting over events intentionally, evaluating what went well and what you'd like to change. Jonathan also talks about the importance of educating and empowering people to know of the multiple doors available to them when they find themselves caught in a conflict. Though a seasoned mediator, Jonathan tells us of a difficult work conflict he experienced with three other mediators and reflects on what could have turned that situation around. Jonathan Rodriguez leads the Institute of Organizational Dynamics, which is a membership think tank of the TCM group. He is a trained and certified mediator who has spent the last half a dozen years building momentum and capacity for the mediation movement in India. Good morning, Jonathan, and welcome to Conflict Managed. So happy to see you today.
1: Thank you, Mary. My pleasure to be here.
0: Wonderful. So why don't we just go ahead and jump right into it, and will you tell us a little bit about your work history?
1: All right. Once again, a real pleasure to be uh, here and, of course, speaking to your viewers I'll start off by saying that I've worn uh, multiple hats, uh, taken on different roles over the last decade and a half. Uh, Maybe I could start off by talking to you about the fact that I actually studied to be a Jesuit priest.
0: Oh, yes, Uh, please do.
1: Yeah. And so I did spend three years with the Jesuits where I went to different exercises, of course, philosophical, theological, and of course, just studying about spirituality uh, and stuff. That's also where I got very interested in psychology, actually. Uh, and so when I did, I I did leave the Jesuits three years into that uh, journey. And when I came back, I actually got to study psychology. I did my degree in psychology. Uh, also, while I was at the Jesuits, I took up to writing. And so I picked up some writing skills and that actually got me my first job. So it was a small town newspaper that I got into. Uh, but it gave me a good chance to actually understand what the drill was and what the grind of being a newspaper was. From there, I attempted to study criminology, uh, but then settled for just uh, writing and, and doing some small gigs in magazines until I got a bigger writing job and a journalism job in the Times of India, which is one of the biggest newspapers here back in India. And while I was being a journalist, that's when somebody said, why don't you go and try studying law because you argue a lot. (laughs) <laughs> I guess that was a time when I was being quite an activist as a journalist. We like to go out there and you know, cover those hardcore stories that are affecting society. And funny enough, I was studying law and I was not really appreciating the fact that, you know, the, the court system is so burdensome and and you know bureaucratic that I would just, the procedures just did not work well with me. I was more of a free spirit. That's probably why I also left the Jesuits, but they wanted to be obedient to everything that's out there. <laughs> So that free split in me actually was not working out very well with law, but that's also where I got a chance to actually uh, learn about mediation, and mediation happened at that time for me, and I understood it a bit more. I went for a couple of uh, competitions as a student, and remember, I was still working as a journalist while I was studying law, Uh, so I did a couple of competitions, a few conferences, I got myself trained, and I then decided to take a step back from journalism and put into all all my efforts into mediation. So I then turned into a trainer, more of an entrepreneur, worked with a business partner, collaborated with a lot of other professionals, both locally and internationally. Uh, and of course, ran an organization at that point of time. I also worked with a mediation firm over the last two years back in India, where I worked with a team, both seniors and of course, leading a, a team that that's uh, you know much more younger. So I've worked in different kind of backgrounds, I would say, you know, working with a team, uh, which is a larger team, uh, you know, working for somebody, working with someone, uh, you know, working together and collaborating as organizations. So different kind of, I would say, dynamics that go into work and work culture. Uh, but I'm happy to be where I'm right now, of course, leading the Institute of Organizational Dynamics with the TCM group. And it's interesting because it's once again, uh, it's a big group, it's a big company, but we, at the same time, we all have our own individual roles and responsibilities, and uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying the, the drill here as well.
0: What an interesting past from Jesuit training, um, Jesuit and training, <laughs> yes. uh, to writing, to criminality. I love that little uh, uh, yeah. sidetrack, journalism, mediation, and now uh, running Institute for Organizational Dynamics. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your TED talk. I'm going to put it in the show notes. What you talk about the benefit of mediation versus going through um, the law system, right? So, if you want yeah. your dispute settled, what is the likelihood it's going to be settled in a way that's beneficial for you and all involved if you go through the, the courts versus if you go through mediation? And for our listeners, it is a lovely, it's like only 10 minutes and it's so packed full. I, I recommend all of you if you're not aware of what mediation could do for you, uh, I recommend it. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I'll start off though by completing the last point. Uh, that if you do part two of this interview, say 10 years from now, I'm sure that my <laughs> my work history will have a much bigger <laughs> roller coaster, right? But yeah. Coming back to my TED Talk, you know, it's it's out there, and I'm I'm sure everyone who watches it will uh you know take away something. I know there are a lot of viewers in, in the states who have actually watched this. A lot of US media have written back to me and asked me whether they could post it on their websites. And I most happily, of course, accepted that and felt that was a that was an honor, in fact, for that to be taken on. But uh, you know, I like giving this analogy, you know, and I don't I don't want to repeat things that I said in the TED talk, but this analogy about because in the TED Talk, I basically put the onus back on the lawyer and the user, you know, because mediators are there. We are trained, we are skilled, we have the experience, you know, but we cannot go out and butt into people's conflicts. It's about them, of course, inviting us as mediators to come and help them resolve disputes. And like we... You know, normally try and define mediation. It's it's a facilitated negotiation, right? Two parties have tried to talk things through. It's not worked out, and they want somebody else, a professional or neutral, to come in there and help them complete that negotiation. In the TED talks, I I basically put it back on to the lawyer and, and user and say you should be recognizing what kinds of disputes are fit for mediation, suitable for mediation and start, you know, referring those kind of cases to mediation, try and initiate conversations, you know, with the other side through a trained mediator. And I'm trying to also kind of pull up the legal community back at India and say that you need to take your responsibility very seriously about how you counsel your clients. And the fact that, if you know that this case does not need to go down the litigation path, you have the moral and ethical responsibility to, to tell your client that they could try you know, sorting this out through uh, an amicable route and there's mediation there. And you can try it out for a few hours, a few sessions, and if it's not working out, you can always go down the litigation path. So, of course, that onus going back on the lawyer to say you've got to take your oath seriously, but also on the user to say don't be naive right you can't be naive in today's world when you go to a lawyer just just don't take his or her advice that that's going to be the simple truth and that's the only way you can resolve a dispute that litigation is the only path when you go to a doctor, you just don't go to one doctor. And if a doctor says, hey, you got cancer, you just don't get really upset about it and, and say, okay, I got to go through all chemo and get started my process. You go to half a dozen other doctors and you get all their opinions and then you, you find out what's the best procedure to choose what path you want to go down with the therapy. And so I'm the user as well to say, there's a responsibility on you here, you know, just don't take advice that's coming to you blindly, but go out there and look out for the multiple doors. And I talk about this multiple doors in dispute resolution, figure out which door is the best door to walk into at this particular time, because at this particular time, you might choose the mediation door, but it might not be helpful, say six months from now, because the conflict has escalated. So that's, that's the whole gist about the TED talk about saying there are multiple doors to dispute resolution and you should choose the one that's most suitable for you at that current time.
0: You know, that's what I really um, love about mediation and just dispute resolution in general is it gives us uh, choices. Sometimes we feel, exactly. especially when we're in conflict, we feel like we're lost in the forest of conflict. We don't know what's up and down. We get very positional um, yeah. and it's confusing and difficult And I feel like mediation is a lifeline that says, okay, there are different options. Okay, I can do something to take control of my situation. I don't have to leave it into the hands of others. Maybe my supervisor is not doing anything about it. Maybe my organization doesn't care. Maybe I've been counseled, just go straight to the lawyers. But I love what you're saying, options. When we treat people with dignity and respect, we give them live options for their real difficult problems, and we will all face and have faced serious issues. But the more we empower and educate and give people real options, the better they're going to be, and the better our communities are going to be.
1: Absolutely, I agree with that. And I think, uh, Mary, for you know, a lot of this comes down to something very basic in the sense that. It comes down to what's our natural instinct to conflict, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and if, if, you have, if you've been part of a society that naturally thinks that the best way to deal with conflict is get competitive and aggressive and adversarial about it, then you think that's the only way. And no one has told you that you can do this collaboratively. Uh, everyone knows that you can talk to the other person and resolve a dispute. But when you tell them, hey, you can have a professional to help you continue that conversation because you're not being able to reach out to the other side, they'll be like, oh, I never knew that this existed. And in my head, I'm like, how could you not know that this existed? This is, this is not rocket science. This is so human. It's one human being helping two other human beings to have a conversation, right? And of course, it comes down to the legality of stuff. But I think uh, from a very basic perspective, it's, it's about us recognizing there are different ways to deal with conflict. Uh, and the competitive approach does not need to be the only approach.
0: That's right. And when you look at the history of the world and the way that societies have formed um, for a very long time, mediation mm-hmm. was like you went to your tribal leader or you yeah. to there are many different ways in which um, not just the, the legal route. And I love what you say about the natural instinct. It, and let's suppose that we have a biological response of self-preservation and we, fear, and we are caught in fear because we're caught in conflict. One thing that we do is we educate one another and we come along one another and say, hey, that's a completely natural response to this awful situation you're in.
1: Right. So
0: you're having this natural response, but let's do something else. Let's do something that is um, not reacting out of fear, but... Um, acting out of a place of principle, acting out of a place of love and charity and empathy for myself and for the other and for our community. So, yes. you know, the role of uh, mediators and conflict a resolution to th- our broader communities and to the world. We, I think, we do have this moral imperative to let people know there are other options and give people absolutely. their options. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yes.
0: Right. And the analogy you brought in the medical community. We don't say anymore. It used to be, the doctor was king, and he or she knew what was going on, and they may or may not even tell you what's going on, but they are going to decide what kind of treatment you have. Yeah. This, you know, this idea of talking about the patient as if they're not there—you may be talking exactly. to the family members—and we know, no, we don't do that. That's not how you respect individuals' autonomy. You know, you treat yeah. them as adults, and treating people with adults is, uh, you know, and recognizing they can. Your difficult information and then make informed decisions. And I think it's the same thing with our, our conflicts, our workplace conflicts or other kinds of conflicts.
1: Absolutely, you're right on that part.
0: So I was wondering if you could tell us um, an example from one of these different places that you worked, whether it's the times of India or when you were um, with the Jesuits, about what was one of your best experiences in one of those communities and what was good about it?
1: Well, of course, uh, I'll choose the times of India. I did not work uh, for the Jesuits. I was still studying to be a priest at that point of time, and it would have taken me ten more years to actually become a, a Catholic priest and then work in the different missions that they have. But of course, I learned a lot from them. I, I always go back to say that my I grew up with them. I grew up to be who I am. Some of my virtues, some of my values, of being resilient, of being creative, you know, of just being really. Uh, I would say. Uh, someone who really looks out for the other person. I, that's something I, I completely learned from the Jesuits. And I'll give that back to them any day. But uh, from a work experience, I think uh, it was a time of that it was more of a corporate job. It was my first big job. I was with them for five years. Uh, it's a big company. But I think uh, what I learned there was discipline, uh, determination, and of course, a little bit of diplomacy, <laughs> as you would <laughs> very well know is important in work-life culture. Uh, how to take feedback? How to take criticism? Uh, maybe even insults, in the same way you know you would take, say, praise or a compliment. You know that's very important. And I think uh, a lot of people are, you know, they 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 feel afraid to actually take feedback, to 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 take criticism, and they feel like this is something that's going to be uh, a scar in in their portfolio or in their CV, and it does not have to be. And I think it's important to start. Uh, feeling open to taking feedback and criticism and I wouldn't say that I had the best uh, I would say leaders helping me with that but then I had peers and those peers kind of helped me with that and they uh, we would sit back because we were finished late in the evenings as newspapers do 12 o'clock one o'clock at night and we would sit back and discuss the day and because it's such a tense environment remember that from 10 p.m to 1 a.m in the night when everybody Most of the world is fast asleep. (laughs) Our brains are at full activity because we got to make sure that there's no spelling mistake. The sentences are rightly structured. The picture is being rightly captioned. And you you have to have absolutely everything properly laid out. And because if it's not the next morning, you get an email saying that, oh, these are the 10 mistakes you made. So our brains were at full activity during that time of the night. And so we needed that time to unwind when it was all done. And the paper was out there to publish. And that's when we would sit back and actually, you know, uh, kind of evaluate the day and talk about what we went through and the conversations we had. And because of the tense environment, there was always some friction or the other it might be not on the daily basis, but at least on the weekly basis, there was something or the other that somebody said to the other person. And that would really, you know, sometimes if it was not addressed, then that would start kind of bogging you down. And I know of a colleague of mine, he was actually much more senior to me, and he would hold on to all this stuff and he would not let it out. And it would start to affect him and it would start to show in his, you know, his personality, his behavior, his, uh, his productivity. I also had another colleague and she would be someone who would just go out and say it outright. And, you know, she would, uh, she would blast right in front of, uh, you know, the leaders and the, the rest of the team right during the peak time work. So there were two different people, one who would completely suppress and the other person who would just let it out. And, you know, I used to watch them on a daily basis. And as a youngster there, I, I would say, okay, I need to find a middle ground between these two because none of these are healthy and so i think i learned that a bit uh, of you know trying to find a way out of this that I, i'm not going to be completely quiet about it. at the same time i cannot be suppressing the stuff so i think i learned to i learned to deal with that a lot so dealing with people was something that i learned a lot on this job yeah and i, I take that back because uh, i i would say I, I use it till today some of the learnings there are something that i keep with me until date and um, of course having a good leaders someone you can go out there and actually at the end of the day say you know this is what i went through and i just want to talk about it you know how do how do you normally handle these kind of situations that's very very important and for you to be able to trust your leader to deal with that information correctly uh, and i think uh, in in a leadership role it's a very tricky thing because you want people to be open with you but do you have the skill to deal with information and uh, because that information might be very crucial to what you do with it like if you if you don't act on it it could lead to something else but if you if you act on it and if it you could worsen things as well if you don't act on it rightly so i think it's a very tricky thing and uh, today and as i'm speaking to you i'm thinking you know there should be a special course for leaders on how to deal with information right. you know how much of it do you use how much of it do you just keep in the bank how much of it do you actually work with confidentially Uh, is is very crucial and uh, I think I learned a lot about that as well and uh, I was observing it in those days I would just keep observing what my seniors would do and I would be like okay that's a good thing and that's what I'm taking back and that's what I would like to emulate and then if I saw something that was quite negative I would say okay that's something I would never want to do if I became a leader at some stage.
0: Right. So when we have colleagues or leaders who are modeling for us best practices, it's, it's very informative. We're like, oh, I want to be like that. I want to do something like that. And the opposite is true. We can learn from those uh, negative examples. And it's not fun to be around. It, it uh, has its own challenges. But there is definitely something that we can learn because we know how it feels and we don't want others to feel that way. We know how it impacts right. our work negatively, and we want people to be productive. Um, the skill to deal with information, uh, I think that one thing our leaders definitely need more of is emotional intelligence, right? <laughs> our leaders are our leaders because they have those, those um, hard skills. They you know, know how to run a newspaper, they know how to have you know, sales, they know how to be a brain surgeon, whatever it might be, they yeah. have the hard skills. But if you don't have the emotional intelligence, let's suppose that you are head of surgery and um, you're excellent at what you do. But if people are afraid of you or people don't trust you, then your whole organization, your whole team is going to suffer because you won't know what it is you need to know about your staff and the conditions in order to be the best brain surgeon because people don't trust you. They Absolutely. don't, you know. Yeah. And so I think developing those that emotional intelligence, wherever we are in our work is going to help people come to us. And of course, then we develop psychological safety. And when people feel safe with us as leaders, then they're going to be more engaged and highly productive.
1: Yeah. And I would say it's more of mindfulness because no one is an expert at this. No one's born leader to understand and use information and, you know, and engage empathically. I think it's, uh, It's something that you need to be aware of, mindful of. And when you know you're going down the wrong path, you know what's the right path. And then quickly switch gears and get back onto the right path. Uh, Yeah. So I think as as long as leaders can be more mindful about it, uh, I think uh, they would be more effective leaders.
0: Yeah. Because you're right. It's not you go through a course of emotional intelligence, let's say, and now you have it. No, they're virtues that you continually develop. And with the virtues or with values, personal values, you get them in the everyday of doing it, right? And so if you're mindful, if you do some sort of inventory of how you reacted, what you're proud of, what you want to work on, then you know where you want to go. You see where you are. You can measure where you're how you're doing and, and what you want to continue and not. But I love that mindfulness as a leader or wherever we are in our organization, the more mindful we are, the quicker we're going to be able to act in a consistent way in the way that we want to act.
1: Yeah. Shout out to the Jesuits on this point, of course, because as a Jesuit uh, and I always go back to my learnings there, uh, we would have this exercise towards the end of the day, we We would just reflect on the day and you know think about what we did uh, what were our actions like the things we said, the different encounters we have had with different people uh and most of our lives they were quite uh well lived quite in solitude, but even then we would meet that random person or there would be an event that day where we would meet a lot of people, and so we would we would reflect on the day we would spend fifteen minutes on the and on these different interactions we have had with people. And I think sometimes uh, when days get really, really crazy and mental, as they like saying in the UK, uh, and and there's a lot happening during the day and it's a busy week, I think it's really helpful to just sit down and say, hey, this was the day. How did it go? Who did I meet? What did I say? I might have felt that I said the right things or did the right things, but how did they decode it? And it's the simple encode, decode thing and communications. And there's nothing right and wrong. It's about just how things are interpreted. I would say the whole thing of mindfulness is, is it seems like a very simple uh, exercise, but it's so valuable.
0: So mindfulness is an important aspect of having healthy work environments. Have, have you ever had an experience of working for somebody or an organization that you, it seems as if they practice being mindful and intentional in their practices?
1: yeah absolutely so i think even today where i am and at tcm i think that's something that comes across very very naturally uh i, I see empathy uh, i feel empathy i can i can hear and listen to empathy in the, in the conversation that i'm having with my colleagues uh and it's infectious because the simple things and, uh, and a shout out to LJ at at tcm you know in in the beginning when i used to email her I used to wonder why she would put so many smileys in her, in her emails. And, uh, and I, used to, I, I never did that before. But the more I did that, I realized it's helpful. It's helpful because you're bringing a different tone to the email. You're bringing a different language. Uh, and uh, I feel like, uh, you know, you're just being present. And that email is not just something you've done mechanically. That is it's mindful it, uh, you know, you're being mindful of who's uh, who you're sending it to the the email you're receiving from someone could be quite uh, actually hostile and if if you have felt that language you can actually start to reframe it uh, your, yourself in the way you respond back to it and an emoji could help uh, a smiley could help uh, you know a little bit of, uh, a little bit of humor could help as well. So I think I'm quite happy with what I've already learned at TCM that, uh, the team here is quite mindful, uh, with, with how they go about, uh, with their communication channels. And it, it's really helpful. That's been my biggest pickup so far, I would say.
0: Uh, so I would say that, um, I've had the same experience with TCM. So for our listeners, I'm also a consultant, um, for, um, uh, the TCM group and, uh, all the other kind of communications I've had in my work emails, I've never used an emoji, and nice. uh, when I started interacting with them, I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is a UK thing, or I was in education before. I don't know. Maybe this is a business practice, and I admit it's an unnatural for me. Uh, my emails are usually to the point. I, it's I think about email as informational only, but yeah. as we reimagine the world, I'm in the US, you're in India, they're in London, and if we want to, or they're all over uh, the UK, if we want to communicate in a way that is flourishing, in a way that is human, we're not just little computers going back and forth, and since we don't see each other in person or not very often even on Zoom or Teams, how how do we let the other person know that we see them as a person, that we value them? And so that little message at the beginning, um, oh, how was your weekend? You know, did you have fun doing such and such shows that we care about them and then we can get to the business. And I'm still learning that. And I, I do think it's a, an interesting model and it is about communicating. What am I trying to communicate? And how yeah. is the other person decoding it? I think that's interesting because when I first saw it, started getting those, I'm like, I'm not sure what's happening or not? I just don't know how to take this, and and thinking about what is meant, and then reciprocating um, has been. I've also been learning that as well.
1: It's quite a cultural thing, actually, uh, and I, I know I have a lot of friends in the U.S. as well, and I, I know when I communicate with them, it's it's quite, and you know, it's often just straight to business. But now it's it's evolving. I think there's a lot of change in communications today. A lot of people even use memes and gifs. I think I'm not I'm not there yet. <laughs> but I I can get, again, I can understand the generation that's there B- before they get to business. They, they, get, they like to kind of do a bit of small talk or, you know, a bit of, I would say building the rapport with memes and GIFs and I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, but I'm not there yet personally, but I, I see a lot of value in it though. And especially with emails, as you said, rightly, we're not just, uh, we're not just computers. We have people behind these emails, people who are writing these emails. And sometimes, uh, you know, uh, once again, decoding and encoding messages. You know, you can read an email differently. Uh, When someone just responded in one line, you might think, is he upset? Is she not upset? Uh, Is she tired? Is she just fed up? Or is she very happy? And you don't know what's going on in your mind. And so sometimes, of course, a smiley or an emoji could be misleading as well. But I think it just, it brings a bit of a tone. It brings a bit of, uh, uh, I would say, an atmosphere of sorts of, connecting the both sides and both, both communications there, but yeah, it, the the communication world is evolving, but from a conflict uh, managing management perspective, I think there's, there's a lot of scope in actually studying this further, you know, and seeing the value of uh, how much of an effort we put to be mindful in the conversations that we're having.
0: You know, I think that's such an interesting point about how communication is evolving. And I'm very interested when it comes to conflict resolution and just having a transformational culture in general, clear and direct communication. And so when you're in the middle of a communication revolution, when you're in the middle of a change, it's hard to have, let's say, a company policy. This is what we do now. Or this is what these emojis mean. Or, um, and I understand that at the same time, if there's a new standard, if there's a shift, we need to have conversations. The conversation does not have to be a memo that comes up from the CEO, but how do we as leaders, how do we engage with one another? Hey, have you noticed this? What do you think about this? How how are you adapting to what's going on? And so having those open conversations so that nobody feels left behind. Because you could mm-hmm. be 30 and felt left behind, let alone being, you know, 80 in an organization and feel left behind. Yes. How do we get everybody on board? so that we get our goal of communicating we want to communicate in a healthy way uh, with one another and so making sure that people know that means sometimes we just have to use our words we have to articulate instead of assuming that other people understand what's going on
1: absolutely i agree
0: so i think this is a nice segue into telling us about about the institute of organizational dynamics how do you see the work that you do and that the work of the Institute of Helping People Have Healthier Work Environments. Because my podcast is about toxic work environments and how to fix them. So what is your organization doing to help all of us who find ourselves in these difficult situations?
1: All right. Yeah, so the Institute of Organization Dynamics is one of the many brands of the TCM group, which is working constantly on helping uh, organizations create a healthy, harmonious Uh, workspaces you know happy workspaces where everyone feels included everyone feels they have an equal playing ground uh, and there's there's diverse cultures and opinions and insights coming through conversations uh, within the organization and the institute is more focused I would say on the the research and evidence aspect of all this that's happening around organizations and workplace culture Uh, and we are trying to actually focus a lot on the people and culture aspect of you know it's a new and evolving profession so what goes into it what's included in this how can we create a space for people to come and share their stories and so we're doing a lot of this fantastic pace videocast that we call them where we talk to them have these one-on-one conversations we just spoke to somebody today who spoke about how he was bullied uh, uh, you know having a senior role in an organization yet he was bullied for many years And he did not know that he was bullied until somebody told him he was bullied. And so where do you have the space to kind of come and talk about this thing? Because it's quite therapeutic. Even listening to it, uh, you can feel, uh, you can start to relate to some of these situations and, you know, find ways and know ways how to get out of uh, your own kind of mess that you might be in. Uh, I think because not everyone has the privilege and I use that word very carefully, but not everyone has the privilege to be able to come out and speak about things that are troubling them. Uh, I know that not everyone does. And so sometimes even listening to what somebody else is going through and how they have handled it is enough kind of help to go out there and try and, and handle your own situation. So we hope the Institute you know grows into that space where people can come and talk about their situations and how they have navigated through it successfully. Uh, I don't want to sound like an agony aunt, <laughs> But of course, it's also a space for us to, to research, to, to to report, to document, uh, to write about these conversations. So a lot of podcasts, a lot of blog posts, uh, a lot of publications that will be coming out in the next few months as well. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much the institute and the gist.
0: I love the focus on evidence, because I think one of the last things that we need is another initiative um, in organizations. Here's this month's initiative or this year's initiative. And you know, it's not all that serious because the powers that be are going to forget about it. And there's going to be a new initiative and a new initiative. And our people feel like they're guinea pigs, but rather this cultural transformation, it's not something we're doing this month. It's not a form you fill out. It's not one activity you do, but it's a complete redo, a complete reimagining of what it actually takes to treat mm-hmm. people with dignity and respect and to have them flourish in our workplaces. And so we need best practices. You know, best practices that are continually worked on because we're dynamic, we're changing, our culture is changing. But to have a place for businesses to say, I don't want another initiative. I want a sustained change that's yeah. actually going to be implemented and it's going to be natural, it's going to be part of the DNA of our organization. And I could understand why an organizations gonna say, "Yeah, I'm, we're not doing another thing just to have it fail, and have another thing to have it fail." But this evidence-based, um, yeah really helps, and it helps people who are just concerned with the bottom line. Which businesses should be concerned with that? Not only that, but they should be concerned that what they're doing is actually going to do what they want it to do.
1: Yeah, and it's organically created. That's the most important thing. I think there's a lot that's. I think a lot of these projects internally are shut down even without seeing what went wrong or what worked, what did not work. And I think there's a lot of good things already happening within organizations. So the idea is to go out there and see what's working, what's not working, and and build on what's already working and make it better. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, that's that's the goal as well. So I quite agree with what you're saying, Mary.
0: So as you think about, because you work in this space, when you think about the future, what do you hope happens? What is your... If you could give um, a business owner, a CEO, a manager, one piece of advice of what they could do or your vision for them, uh, what would that be?
1: I would say to think about every step of who you're working with, uh, right from, I would say, the interview stage. And you know these people invest a lot in recruitment. There's a lot of investment that goes into bringing the right people to the table, but Uh, how do you how do you go about with your interviews what's what's what constitutes your interviews when I interviewed uh, for TCM I found that to be a fantastic experience it was supposed to be one hour long or 45 minutes I believe but it went on for 90 minutes because we just had a lot of fun Uh, and uh, you know it gave me a chance to understand the organization of course you can go to the website and see whatever you can pick up from there but to understand the people behind that organization that their personality is uh, you know their spirit so i think the interview stage is i think leaders should not only think about getting to know uh, their future employees or future co-workers it should also be a space for them to show themselves off and say this is who i am and this is what you're getting into by the way so this is how wacko i am maybe or how crazy we are here Oh, you know, this is our sense of humor. I hope you can deal with it. So I guess it's a good place for, it shouldn't be a one-way conversation. It should always be two ways. I almost felt like I was interviewing my folks at TCM at some point of time. I, I asked them a lot of questions and getting to know them as well. So I thought I thoroughly enjoyed that. I would say the next step is of course the induction stage. It's once again, it's taken for granted in many organizations. I know uh, proper orientation is very important. It has to be personal. It has to be relaxed. And I enjoyed that as well. I got a chance to meet each individual. Of course, we're a small team, but I got a chance to meet each individual kind of uh, one-on-one over a virtual call. And it allowed me once again to understand them better. Yeah. And of course, at the end of the day, uh, team calls, the conversations that we're having on a weekly uh, basis or a monthly basis, Uh, what I like is that if it's if it's forward, if it's focused, it's if it's focused on basic creativity and innovation and there's positive energy through those conversations, then those team calls become more of a space for you wanna to go to them and you want to see what's happening rather than you know being a space that oh no, I gotta go and give my report for the week. A lot of organizations feel like this is the time to kind of drive down you know beat uh, the point through that you know we have to reach this goals so or we have to reach this milestones but if you instead spend that time on talking about the positives about what we have already done then the energy in the room is different uh, you know compared to if you have, if your if your boss comes into a deep meeting and just gives you a very depressing sad uh, you know kind of update about how you are doing as a team for like 20 minutes and it's probably insulted a couple of dozen people, uh, you know, said a few rude things to a few other people. And then you're like, oh, where is this going? Uh, you know, you almost feel like, oh, do I have my job next week? Is this company going to be existent next week? And so you have a lot of other thoughts, but if the energy is positive, because I think there's always space for more critical conversations and that could be more private, more one-to-one. But team calls, positive, forward thinking, you know, space for ideas is something that organizations and leaders should look into. And finally, vacations. I think uh, when someone needs a vacation, you should just take it. There cannot be a timing for a vacation. I know I've worked in certain places in the past and I've done a lot of jobs, small-time jobs as well, where taking leave was like, uh, you know, a taboo. You know, you couldn't talk about it. Uh, You know, so I think uh, because people feel like it's, it's a privilege, it's not. I think if you have, if you have earned a, a vacation, if you've earned your annual leave, you should be able to take it at any point of time. And you should take it not when you're completely burnt out because then you're not even going to enjoy a vacation. <laughs>
0: right, so I right. think it's
1: also for, from a leader perspective, it's to understand and see and keep, keep in touch with these kind of moods with your teams and to see where somebody, don't let that person take a vacation when the person is completely burnt out you know it should be at the right time when someone's feeling a bit tired feeling a bit exhausted go out there take that leave uh have a break come back uh you know so i think um that's something else that leaders should also look into in in the modern workplaces
0: i think you're absolutely right i mean we don't want our people to be beaten down they're like oh you're no good to us you go have a vacation where they're no good to right. themselves they're just sleeping But I love this standard, which I've never thought about before, and I wonder what our leaders would think about this, that you want to have a place where people are excited to go to meetings. That meetings are not, I mean, there's the old, you know, drudgery, oh, another meeting, oh, I'm meeting to death. Well, there's something wrong there. That needs to be addressed. We don't need to be in meetings unnecessarily. But it's a different focus of thinking. We want to reduce the amount of meetings so that people don't go to too many meetings to the shift of thinking that this is a highlight. This is positive. We're going to go to this meeting and good things are going to happen. And I mean, that's, like you said, such a shift in energy and a shift of way of thinking about my role at the organization, my role in the team, what my boss is up to, what my boss thinks, what is to be valued. And we, all the lessons of positive psychology, nudge theory, appreciative inquiry, all of this is rolled into that idea, I think, of yeah. being excited or, you know, if you're not with glee, but at least it's not, you know, it's, it's a good thing, not a bad thing. And meetings have gotten this bad rap uh, because they've not been used appropriately, I think.
1: Yeah, and, and I, I'm a big football fan and um... I, mean, you, I know you guys call it soccer back in the US, but a <laughs> uh, football fan. Uh, and, you know, I, I I follow a lot of managers and how they deal with things. And I always look at the team thing as a halftime speech or a halftime conversation that the coach has with the players. And if you're going to use those 10 minutes to talk positive, to pump them up in the right spirit in a positive way, then they're going to come back into the second half and do a better job. But if you're going to trash them down and tell them how bad, they were or you know just start throwing things around and uh I'm not sure I know a lot of people who will say oh that works sometimes or so the key word is sometimes and so I think I would say the experience has been if if a manager comes out there and talks positively and gives them ideas of how they can better themselves and of course pumps them up and say that that's not your best you were not at your best in those 45 minutes but you can be and this is how you can be at your best in the next 45 minutes so that's already positive energy they're walking back onto the field, you know, feeling very positive to, to, you know, turn this on its head and make a comeback of sorts.
0: I love that. I would hate that somebody would misconstrue what I'm saying is um, toxic positivity, right? Anything that's toxic yeah. is bad. But really thinking about employee-centric workplaces, how do we help people flourish? How do we really speak into them so that they can be their best selves, that they can be high-performing, that they can be engaged? And all those things require feedback, positive, negative, everything in between, but really thinking about, about what is going to motivate. And we are motivated, and we're going to do our best when we feel respected, when we feel that that person is for us. And if you have that feeling going into a meeting that no one's going to be berated, um, if there's a problem, we'll be told, because that's good. We, who wants to work on a project? if they're doing the wrong things, right? Yes. If they're heading in the right the wrong direction. That that's right. not positive. So, yeah, I love that. That the pep talk, the 10-minute pep talk, that can tell you the truth. Hey, this isn't working. Everybody knows this. Let's try this and I know you can do it. Right? Yeah. That, that's great. Any last words of wisdom before we sign off?
1: Um, yeah, I think um From my experience, of course, I haven't spoken about my worst job scenario yet, but I think something that I could learn from an experience that I had, and especially comes back to this communication patterns that, uh, you know, we were talking about earlier, it wasn't exactly a job, but a collaboration, uh, you know, with a few uh, peers at that point of time, and did not go down very well, because there was a clear communication pattern which kind of got derailed from a cultural perspective. You know, we were four people from four different continents working on a project and it all went downhill when one person wrote a threatening email to the other person. And, you know, it, it spiraled out of, you know, out of control within no time. And it was four good friends, four good buddies actually working on the project. Uh, and then in a week's time, you are four complete strangers, you know, mm-hmm. taking shots at each other. And that's something that I, it still stays with me, and I wonder how we could have dealt with that better. But even today, uh, you know, a couple of us have moved on. A couple of us uh, still are not be able to communicate with each other. The best thing you can do in these kind of situations when things are not working within a workspace, within a team that's working together on a project, is to at all point of time, you know, try and deescalate. Try and de-escalate, and I know it's going to be tough. I know at certain times you're like, "How can I try and de-escalate?" When the other person is trying to escalate, but that's the thing. If you are mindful, and it comes back to the mindfulness that we were talking about earlier, if if you can be mindful there and say, "By me escalating, it, it's not going to help," and, and sometimes I look back on the situation that I was part of, and I say, uh, "I wish I tried to de-escalate more." I don't think I was consciously escalating, and I'll give myself credit for that. But at the same time, I was not putting enough effort to de escalate. And especially in workplace conflicts, de escalation is very important. Um, second thing that I would take away from that learning lesson is uh, keeping the communication door open, keeping that conversation open at all points of time, not saying things like, I'm not going to talk to you after this, this is the last time I'm sending you this email or, you know, stop bothering me, you know, you know, these kinds of conversations that's shutting the door on the communication. So, you know, something like this once again, teaches you things that you wish you had done differently. And uh, yeah. So I would say, you know, in, in situations when things get hostile when things get tense within, uh, within colleagues and workforces as much as possible, try and deescalate. The third learning for me was that when we did have this dispute and the four of us were in this conflict, there were people who tried to help us, and the funny part of it is that all four of us are mediators, <laughs> <laughs> and it was four mediators who did not accept the idea that somebody else, among besides the four of us, could come in there and say, "Let me try and try and bring some rationale into this and sort this out." And there were a couple of people who said, "Hey, uh, let us help you out. You know, you, you guys work so well together. What's going on here?" And we were like, "No, we, we'll, we'll figure this out on our own." And so to be open to to be open to a neutral person coming and speaking, of course you, you will have a choice and you will have uh, uh, you will have your priority and preferences on who that neutral can be. But to completely discount the idea of having a neutral come and help you out, even if it's not in a, a professional setup, if it's just an informal thing, I think uh, that's something that you have to be open to and you know keep your pride away and allow that to happen sometimes. Uh yeah, so those are the three take backs, I would say, from that kind of uh, eventful situation, which did not go well in history, but well, so far I'm, it's fine.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry it didn't go well, but I'm so glad you made that last point, because when I tell people I'm in conflict resolution, the first thing they say, well, I don't like conflict. And I say, I don't either. Uh, who right. likes conflict? Uh, but we can get better at it. But even us who do it professionally, we're not saints. We're not angels. We're not always our best selves. We all have places to grow and to be mindful. And, um, and we learn from when we don't ask help, maybe the next time we will right? and to communicate and not de-escalate. And I hope that for all of, all of our listeners here that you would communicate and do what you can to deescalate. And that is different than doing nothing. De-escalating is doing something. It is active, whether it's just in your mind, um, but it is intentional to choose a different route.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Mary. This has been an absolute pleasure.
0: Take care. Thank you, Jonathan, for being with us today on Conflict Managed. I do have a link to Jonathan's TED Talk in the show notes. Conflict Managed is produced by Third Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services. You can find them online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. My name is Mary Brown. We'd really appreciate it if you liked and subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us out. And if you would like to leave a comment, a question about the show, if there's someone you would like to see interviewed on Conflict Managed, please let us know. You can send us an email at Three P Conflict Restoration at gmail.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.